Hello, ladies from around the world. This is Yemi Majekodumi again from Widow Recovery Secrets. I hope you're well wherever you are. As I did say, I will start interviewing some special guests on my podcast. And today I'm actually honored to have a gentleman called John Polo. Hooray! <laughs> We've been trying to meet up for the last two months at least, but I'm honored to have him here today. I'm just going to introduce him quickly. He's from Illinois, United States. He's an international coach, best-selling author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and his passions are grief, healing, dating, relationships, and self-esteem, to mention a few. And he's the author of four different books, which I will get him to explain later, but he's been featured on Often Post, NBC, People.com, Fox, and to mention just a few. However, the reason why I brought him here, ladies, is He's survived widowhood. So we're going to share about the ups and downs and the triumphs. And my tagline has always been, John, that people, women should dare to dream greater. That once we lose a spouse, it's not the end. Of course, we have to recover, grow stronger, and then find a new dream. But it's not impossible. So I'm going to hand you over to John. And the first thing I'm just going to mention, um, ask him to introduce himself and say a little bit about his passion and why his journey to date briefly. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we could finally get on the same schedule here. Um, so I'll just briefly tell you a little bit about myself and then how I got into all this work. So when I was 17, 18 years old, I fell in love with Michelle. We dated for about a year and then she broke my heart in high school. We went our separate ways. We lost all contact for seven years. Yes. One day I was sitting at my computer looking at emails and an email from her popped up and I kind of had a panic attack. Like I couldn't even read it. I went to the refrigerator, drank a whole glass of water, went back to my computer, read the email. She was giving me condolences on my dad who had passed away and she had found out um, actually through Facebook somehow. So we started talking for a whole year. After a year, she came to visit me. We realized we still loved each other after nearly a decade apart started our life together. Two and a half years after that, she got diagnosed with one of the worst cancers known to man. And she had it for two and a half years before she passed away. I wanted to die for a very, very long time. The whole two and a half years she was sick, I had unbelievably bad anticipatory grief. I could not believe that I was about to lose her again. About a month after she passed, I was going just crazy. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was overcome with grief and despair. And a friend said, you know, you seem to be processing your grief a lot on Facebook while she was dying. Why don't you think about starting a blog? Maybe that will help you out a little bit emotionally. And I did. I started a blog the next day. So it was a month after she passed, just a way to process my grief. And it kind of took off and it became what it is today, which is doing what you do, which is trying to help people who have been through this find better tomorrows. Isn't it amazing? Because I did the same. I, when my husband passed, I, I started a blog. But I've always, I think I, no one really said it, but I'd always had a passion to write from when I was really yeah. young. So I just used that too. And I started with my, my blog as well. But isn't it amazing? So what's the time scale from what you've just shared and now? It just passed seven years. Wow. So, yeah, in seven years and a month out from her death. So it's not really that long, is it? No. No, yeah, you've achieved so much. 
Because I, what I love about you, what I can relate to you as well is, I felt when I lost my spouse, my husband, I felt the only thing that could sustain me was to find a greater thing, greater than me. And that was to go out there and find other people who were going through the same thing or perhaps at an earlier stage, but I could help. And I found something greater has to come out, something greater than that loss enables us to go on, I think. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea it was going to turn into anything other than me just starting a blog and processing my grief, but this work, all of it, has been unbelievably healing to me. My work, whether it's the coaching calls, the writing, the public speaking, it has been so helpful and so healing. It must, it must be. All right, so I'm going to go and into ask you a few questions now because I know you do a lot of coaching and you've been interviewed by a lot of people. So what I wanted to ask you, because it's such an interesting area, it's a very niche area because I found, it's, even though I'm doing widows, I found I've had to branch into single women because people ask me, even some widows have asked me, but I've said I'd rather focus on just the, widow, the women at the moment. So do you think widows and widows process their grief differently or is it similar? What have you found? Yeah, I love that question. So I do have to be honest about 90% of my clients are female, are widows. Um, But I do have a decent amount of male clients and obviously a lot of widower friends. I've done almost 5,000 coaching sessions and I don't see a huge difference. I really don't. I, I know that, you know, common sense would be like, well, of course there's a difference. I just don't see it. I think that there's a lot of universal truths Mm. to grief, whether you lost your person when you were 24 years old or 74 years old, whether you're male or female, I see a lot of similarities, way more similarities than I do differences. Okay. So do you think, um, widows, women, do we tend to sort of hold on longer to that loss than men do? Because I've met some women, widows that have walked the journey for, I know we process our grief in different ways, but I've met some widows who've journeyed it for 10, 12 years. And they haven't really, as much as you share, try to say you have to find something to process your grief, they still tend to hold on to the past a lot. Whilst I've met widowers who would acquit, are more or less ready, within a year or two, they seem slightly more open to want to love again. But I find widows tend to hold in longer. Yeah. And that, again, this might just be my perspective mm. because so many of my clients are women. I haven't seen that with my own two eyes. I, I see everything. I see people who, you know, want to get back out there and date fairly quickly. I see people yeah. who, you know, wait five, 10 years to date or never date ever again. I yeah. see people who, you know, start taking steps to kind of rebuild fairly quickly. I see people who are years out who maybe aren't ready to take those steps yet. It's such a wide ranging, you know, thing with, with how people process their grief and eventually get back up and try to rebuild. I haven't seen a ton of difference between widows and widowers, but again, that might just be my perspective. I might be missing something there because so many of my clients are female. Okay. Because I just find, but then you must have dealt with a wider spectrum now because of your, the work, because you've done worked extensively, haven't you, with widows at least. Yep. Yep. So whilst maybe I've just touched a, a tip of the iceberg in comparison to what you've done. 
Because I've only started doing this for over two years, even though I've been in the journey for nine years. Yeah, seven, yep. Mm, the, nine's the nine, other, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I'll say, though, is, you know, in our society, at yeah. least here in the U.S., I don't know how it is in other countries, but yeah. in our society, you know, men aren't supposed to show pain. They're yeah. not supposed to show weakness, etc. Yeah. right? If I meet a widower at a conference I'm speaking at, yeah. or if I meet a widower who comes to me for coaching, yeah. that's usually the type of person who is willing to show their pain. It's usually the type of man who's willing to show his emotion. So maybe that's also why I'm seeing mm. that I don't see a huge difference between widows and widowers. Okay. Well, so I tend to talk to women. I've spoken to different on different continents, but I find mainly East, West Africa, England, England, perhaps sometimes a bit more closed in and America more open. Right. Widows. But I find um, it's just it's just an interesting um, area. But as I guess as I guess to venture out more as I grow, I'll discover more. But I just found a lot of women that I've come across. They seem to, or it might just be society also. Women have to be. I find widows are more cautious because they focus on the fact is that because they're single now, they're more vulnerable and. People want to date them, so they're more cautious. So they yep. perhaps close in more than yep. perhaps a man who might feel easier. He might find it easier to go out and find it. I don't know. It depends. Depends on the culture as well. Like some anyway. It's so deep. We could go on with that forever. Should yep. we go to the next topic? Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do both genders? It's similar to what this overlaps in what we just said. Do both genders, that is widows and widows, navigate dating or choose to begin a new relationship in different or similar time scales? Have you found? Yeah, that's a good question. Again, I haven't found a huge difference. There perhaps there could be, but I just see such a wide ranging variety of what people do and how they handle it. I have widowed people who start dating a couple months out, widowed people who wait a couple years, and widowed people who never date ever again. And I think because in our society, Men aren't supposed to be emotional. They're not supposed to show their heart or their pain, as silly as that is. And as much as I hate it, that's how our society is here, at least in the U.S. I think that the men I see as clients don't agree with that. They do show their heart. They do show their emotion. And very much what I see is it really depends on the human. I have clients who were madly, madly in love with their spouse and start dating a couple months out, mm. both men and women. And I have clients who were madly in love with their spouse, and it's been five or six years out, and they haven't got back out there yet. Yeah. And then even in terms of school, what I found is well, even when people are madly in love with their spouses and they date very early, it doesn't. It, it's, some people process their grief by having to be close to someone else. So it doesn't because some people say, oh, why so early? So it doesn't necessarily mean they're grieving. It doesn't mean they're not grieving, even though they're dating. But that's the way certain people express. They have to be close to someone because they need the comfort to survive the grief. While some people withdraw and could withdraw for years. Right. And I always say, like, Mm -hmm. I don't care when someone starts dating again. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's a month out, 10 years out, or they never start dating ever again. My job is to help them get to the best place they Mm -hmm. can be at. And I think 
The one thing I will say about people who start dating early, and again, I, I have clients and friends who started dating early who are happily married again in very beautiful relationships. But the one thing I will say is we don't want to put all of our happy eggs in one person's basket. So I think that there is value in doing some of the work on yourself, processing your grief, taking some steps to rebuild so that if you meet the right person again, they are an addition to your happiness mm -hmm. and yeah. not the sole reason yeah. for your happiness. Mm -hmm. That's such a huge, that's a valid, valid point. Yes, definitely. So can I ask you, what I've been curious to ask you is, um, before I go to question number four, is how did you navigate the, you know, you started your blog and then you became an international coach. How did you break, what was your first breakthrough on when you could say, you'd broken through into the coaching world of what you do? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, like I said, I started the blog a month after Michelle passed. And that same day, I started a Facebook page. So it was a blog and a matching Facebook page. About a year and a half later, I put out my first book. Okay. And what happened at that same time, two weeks before my first book came out, I made a post about Michelle, my late wife, and it went viral. Like it was on the front page of Yahoo and People Magazine and all this type of stuff. Okay. And I had all these people messaging me for help with their grief. And what I realized was I have the ability to help people with their grief. So at the same time my book came out, I started the coaching and I probably only had one or two clients the first six months. Yeah. What happened then was I owned a business with my aunt okay. and the business suddenly went under. And I had no money okay. and I was about to be homeless. And I was sitting there with my mom and my mom said, you know, why don't you go get a real job? <laughs> yeah. And I said, I want to do the coaching and yeah. the speaking and I want to write books. I know I can help people. So I put all of my time and effort and energy into that and it took off pretty quickly. And here I am today. Okay. Cause what I noticed about your posts, you're quite, because you're able to really be you're very, a lot of people are authentic, but you tend to go deeper than that. And I think that's what I found. It'd be interesting to see that post. Is it, where would I be able to read the first post you'd written? You uh, the one that I said went viral? Yeah. I'll send it to you. It's okay. so, thank you for saying the authenticity thing, because yeah. I do. I put all my heart and all my soul yeah, into yeah, social yeah. media. So I'll tell you quickly the story. Um, I proposed to Michelle a year after we started dating again. And then she got sick. We rushed to the courthouse to legally be married before her first surgery. She was incredibly sick that day. She was throwing up. She was vomiting. Well, again, we wanted to make it legal before she, her first surgery. Yeah. Right after we did the vows, we went to the emergency room. We stayed there for five days until her first surgery. So when the cancer came back, about a year and a half later, the cancer came back. We started planning a real wedding, like with family and friends, and it was going to be a beautiful ceremony. She died two weeks before that wedding was to take place. So I was in bed one day about two weeks after she died, and I was looking at her phone, and I saw a picture of her in the wedding dress. And I had never seen her in the wedding dress because she died before the wedding. And I made a post about that. And that's the post that went viral. It's a picture of her in her wedding dress explaining the situation. 
Because it must have really, because that's what I find, the more authentic you are, the more people open up to you as well. Yeah. Yeah. People can pick when you're real and when you're not real. No matter mm-hmm. how glamorous your pages are on Facebook. And that's what I found about you when I read your post. It's basically what comes to mind is raw. And it's very unusual to get that nowadays. Yeah. You know, where people are very raw in what they're saying, meaning you're just basically stating how you're feeling and what's going on, what's going on. A lot of people have told me over the years, like, you need to become more polished. And I'm like, but that's not me. Mm. That's not me. I'm putting my heart out there, my emotion out there. Mm. You're going to see me in my baseball cap. Like, I'm not trying to be, it is a business for me at this point. I am a professional author and coach and speaker, but I'm not trying to be the most polished person in the history of the world. I'm trying to help people find healing with my heart and my, you know, my experience. That's it. Because you find when you start to become very polished, number two things that came to what you said, when people say to you, you're too, you need to be more polished. Sometimes people are afraid of the rawness because everyone on earth has been to some kind of pain. But many people tend to, because I just say to you, my background is in mental health. So so a lot of people, even when I deal with people who have mental health problems, a lot of the pain has been pushed to the back. Mm-hmm. So what brings the crisis eventually is when the mind can't take so much and you crash land. So right. when people say to you or say to me, you're not too polished or do people really want to hear that? It reminds them of certain things they haven't dealt with. Then number two, on the other side of that as well is those that of us that want to heal, want to hear. Yeah, people want to hear the rawness because it welcomes people to come to you for help. Yeah. Yeah. People who cannot, people who come to you for help come to you because they know your truth, that you're you're giving your truth. And that's why I even found, because I'd always been on social media, but when I was starting to do my podcast, I remember my coach, I had a very close friend and he was, he had survived something very personal as well. But when I look back now, he couldn't deal with certain things. So when I was trying to write my book, I noticed I took a few things out from his, the way he counseled me. But on hindsight now, although I've written some of those bits in my blog and some of the writes on my website now, it's because sometimes people don't want to face what they're buried. Yep. Isn't that the case? Whilst when they come to you, they can be themselves. They And that's why they heal quickly. Yeah. Because society is full of so much faith. There's so much, everything is a fast cover, beauty, glamour. But when you get to people, people are broken people, but they show this face, they're fine with all their makeup or no makeup, whatever. I always say that, you know, if I get up in front of people, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, my podcast, a, a speech I'm giving at a convention, whatever it is, if I talk about where I'm at today, yes, right? I just get up there and I start talking about, yeah, I like my life and I'm happy, et cetera. That means nothing hmm. to someone in pain. What means something to someone in pain is for me to take them back to when I didn't believe in hope, to, for me to take them back to when I was on the floor sobbing so hard I could knock it up, to me to take them back to when I wanted to die. They have to know that brokenness in order to believe that I understand them, that I know what that was like, and for them to then be inspired by where I'm at today. If you just stand in front of people and talk about how good you're doing, it doesn't mean anything unless they know that you know what it's like to be in complete despair. Then it means something. Yeah. 
But when you talk about what when you were talking, what came to my mind as well is well, you know, when you're quite that authentic and raw, does it sort of bring back the hurt or not of your past sometimes? It's such a great question. So I think sometimes it can, but for me at this point in my career, it actually inspires me. It inspires me to think about what we went through, mm-hmm. to think about the fact that I never, ever, ever thought I would make it through. Mm-hmm. To think about the fact that when my wife was dying, she would tell me, you will make it through. Yes. And to think about the fact that I have made it through. Like it inspires me to think about how far I've come. And when I'm honest with myself about how deep the pain was, and that I'll always be in pain from her death. Mm-hmm. But when I'm honest with myself about how deep the pain was, I'm able to give myself the proper amount of credit for how far I have come. Yeah. Mm. Because when you said um, you'll always be in pain, like with me, I found, because I am a Christian, so I found what really helped my journey, and I tell people is, that helped me a lot because I could, because there's something about the loss that if I didn't have that faith, it would, because the loss of someone so dear, especially when you're married and you've, you know, you're so close and you've planned your future together. I found for me personally, and that's why I write about in my book is that there was something that happened in my soul that healed me that I couldn't have done with all the work I do today. There was some spiritual healing that took place. So like even when I talk about what I went through, I don't feel, I feel there's something about that pain that I've, I've left, has left me. So I don't say I'm still hurting, but I know it's not here. I even say to right. my children, it's not here, you know, or even or like when I write, anytime I write a post, I write exactly what has been that challenge at that moment in time. So as much as I've journeyed nine years, there are very moments when, I see the vacuum. I see, you know, it's always there. Yep. But the pain inside, I found, I don't feel that anymore. Right. Yeah, I'm a very spiritual person, and I have to say it's helped me so much. It's, it's helped me on a very deep level. I was incredibly angry and incredibly bitter for a long time. And I always tell people, like, there's nothing wrong with being angry or bitter after experiencing this type of thing. But what we want is we want to not stay there forever. And there's a number of things that help me claw my way out of that. And my spirituality is definitely one of them. Because mm. I found um, um, as well, I always know forgiveness came up for me as well, which I did. I was running a group one with some women. And then I realized we were talking about forgiveness. And I just felt in my inner core to say, oh, I forgive my husband for leaving me. And that gave me another perspective on forgiveness. because. When we lose people, as much as we, we know their loss, we grow and we recover gradually and heal. There's always a part of me I didn't realize in my subconscious that I had actually held on forgiveness because he left me with my two children and we had all these plans. So I felt in that moment we run in the group, I had to say also that I forgive you for leaving me. Have you, can you relate to that? Yeah, 100%. I mean... And this is something that I see in many, many widowed people. Like my wife had cancer for two and a half years. She fought it so hard. She she could not have fought it harder. So during the moments where I was angry at her for leaving me, it's completely nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. She didn't want to leave. But those moments usually come 
when you're down here in the physical realm, living this human experience, and you feel like you can't take anymore, it's when you, you know, you pick up your kid and they're sobbing from school, you know, because they missed their mom or someone bullied them. It's when you have to go on your first date and it goes horribly. It's when, you know, whatever it is, and if it's that moment of like, I can't do this without you, why did you leave me here? She didn't leave me by choice, <laughs> but it's still like, yeah, it's that anger. Yes, yeah. And then again, that, that eventually yeah. realizing, you know, that it is nonsensical yes, and forgiving yeah. them yeah. For, for it. Yeah, making peace with it. Yeah, because it's about rationalizing it in the end that it's right. not their fault that they left. Right. You no, know, they died. It's not, they didn't want to die. So, can I, so what do you offer in your coaching? In terms of um, that, in the benefits, what are the specific? I've, I've obviously read some of it, but do you want to share that for the benefit of my audience? Yeah. So when I first started the coaching, I thought it was just going to be grief coaching. And yeah. then what I very quickly realized is like, okay, but that then where do we go? So, you know, what do we do when people want to get back out there and start dating? What do we do when they're in a relationship? I think that for widowed people, especially, you know, self-esteem self-worth self-sabotage the way we feel about ourselves purpose motivation self-care all of these things are so important not only when you're grieving but when you're also trying to actively rebuild so we really i just take it depending on you know where the client is what i think the client needs but it's grief coaching but it's also dating coaching personal growth coaching and life coaching all wrapped into one so it's holistic, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So can you share what are your success stories? Do certain case studies stand out? Yeah, I have. I was just talking to my friend about this. There's quite a few stories that stand out. Um, I think the ones that stand out the most for me are the people who really were wanted to die. They wanted to die. And I know that because I wanted to die for so long. And now, not only do they not want to die, but they love to live. That to me, and that's, that's my story. I wanted to die for so long, and now I love to live. And when you can help a client, when you can walk that journey with a client, and you get to see that unfold, and it's not a, it's not a day thing or a month thing. Sometimes it takes years. But when you can see that unfold, and then you also see somebody who maybe struggled with the way that they felt about themselves their entire life, yeah. and now they feel good about themselves. Now maybe they even feel better than ever about themselves. That is so profoundly beautiful. <laughs> As a coach, like there's nothing better than that. Yes, yes, that's amazing. Mm. So what, while you were talking, what came to mind as well is you know, in terms of coaching, because with the, I know we're talking about widows and then we're looking at holistic coaching for the person involved. Do you come across people who want to coach, but they have challenges with the pay to pay and stuff? Do you means tests and stuff like that? How do you deal with things like that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I don't means test. Basically, I don't have anything promoting it on my website. But if somebody comes to me and says, yeah. you know, I can't afford that price, mm -hmm. I'm absolutely willing to work with them. I have a couple clients right now that I work with like that. I will also, I do like workshops. I have books out. 
So sometimes I'll give people free access to my workshop or send them a book, et cetera. It's, it's hard because this is my profession. This is how I keep a roof over my head. This is how I feed my kid. But at the same time, and we want to value that. We want to value the work we do, right? Like everybody gets paid for every job they do and coaches should as well. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're not only helping the people who have decent bank accounts. So I think you, you have to look at how you can give back yeah. to the people struggling financially as well. Definitely. So while you were speaking, one question that came to me, it's not on there, is um, when did you have your first speaking break? Which was Eight. huge for you, the huge one that was that broke ground. Yeah, it was actually 18 months in, and it yeah. was my first speaking gig ever. So I actually love this story. Let me tell it real quick. So yeah. the first time I ever spoke in public was yeah. at my dad's funeral in 2008. I wrote the eulogy, and I read it. And I had it in my hands, you know, the piece of paper with the eulogy, and I could not stop shaking the whole time. And I didn't look up one time. The next time I spoke in public was Michelle's funeral in 2016. And I wasn't shaking the whole time, and I looked up a few times, but I was still incredibly nervous. The next time I spoke in public was at a speaking gig with about 200 people at at Camp Widow. And I had a lot of people in my room because my social media had taken off, so a lot of people knew me. So I had about 200 people in the room. And again, I had only spoken in my dad's funeral and Michelle's funeral, and now I'm in front of 200 people speaking about grief and healing and all this. And I start reading what I have on the paper, like I'm starting my speech, and I start like mumbling my words, and I, I forgot my place, and I forgot what I wanted to say. And the door was about five feet from me on the right. And I swear to you, I promise to you, I said to myself, just leave. Just run out of here. Just leave. Just forget it. Like, <laughs> It's fine. Like, just exit stage left. Yes. I calmed myself down. I got my senses back, and it went wonderfully. Everybody loved it. I got great reviews, and that was really the launch of my speaking career. But I used that story as a way to tell people, like, stay the course. You're going to be afraid, especially when you're a widowed person trying to rebuild your life. You're going to be stepping outside your comfort zone. You're going to be doing things and experiencing things you never thought you would. You have to do that. You have to step outside your comfort zone, I believe, in order to, as you said, when we open this podcast, to dream greater and to truly build the best tomorrow that you can build. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thank you. It's been amazing. Um, So what have your challenges been in coaching, speaking, writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think as far as speaking, like just getting your name out there. You, I always tell people like, because I have a lot of people that want to be coaches and they come to me like, how do you do this? And I try to help them. But one of the things I tell people is you can be the best coach in the history of the world. You can be the best speaker in the history of the world if nobody knows you. Mm. So getting my name out there for the speaking and I think for the coaching, it's hard to get people to take that step. It's hard to get people to work on themselves. And I'm not saying that in a critical way. I, I didn't do it for a very long time myself. It's hard to get people to take that step, especially when we're going to be looking at their own interpersonal pain and their own personal struggles. So there's constantly people that 
you know, I feel like I can help, but all I can do is extend my hand. I can't make them take it. No, no. Because two things that you said that brought something to mind is in getting yourself out there as a speaker, what strategy would you suggest one should use? Yeah, that's such a great question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think, you know, have some decent marketing pieces together, right? Like have a video of yourself together, have, you know, a media kit together. Um, I think it's who, you know, like if you have connections, definitely. And then I really think it's like an, just throw everything at the wall approach. Like, you know, there's some convention you want to try to speak at, but you think it's too big for you and they won't look at your email, send the email, you know, there's a place that only, you know, you think you might be able to go speak at, but you think maybe there's only be four people there and you don't want to waste your time. No, go speak for four people. You can help one of those people change their lives potentially. So really like just take that step and be patient, but be aggressive. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And in terms of um, coaching, what I found as well is to relate to what you're saying is I think when people, I think people need to know you as well. Like, I think, you know, like when I, someone explained this to me, you know, sometimes we have favorite people we look up to on telly or mentors in our heads that we've liked, we've followed for years. Right. And then it gets to a point where you, if they don't come at a certain time, you think, oh, what's happened? It's like, you know them personally, but you do not really know them personally. And I've come to find now when people want coaching with me, they've, I felt because I've spoken to them on and off podcasts informally over the year, then they come back. I would want to coach. I feel people really need to feel they know you before they want to come and pour out their pain to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, of course, people are going to come to you and they're going to, you know, spill their guts. They want to know that you care, that you're real, that you're not a phony. That's why I think the authenticity part of this all is so important. 100%. You can have the greatest, you can be the greatest coach in the world as far as the the toolboxes you can help people with. But if you're not bringing heart and compassion, you're not bringing the whole game. You need all of it to really truly help people the best way possible. So in terms of um, a business, this is the last question I'm going to ask you and let you go. Is would you recommend it's more efficient initially when you're starting out in coaching to do group coaching rather than one-to-one? That's such a good question. I love that question. I, I didn't expect it, but I have to talk about it for a minute. So I started doing one-on-ones. Like I said, when I started this, I was almost homeless. I'm not exaggerating. And I actually ran a special. I ran a $22 special. Yeah. In a private Facebook group of widowed people, I ran a $22 special. And I got a bunch of people to sign up. And every time somebody would do a session, they'd be happy. And I'd ask them for a testimonial. And I would post a testimonial. And after 30 days of this, I looked at my bank account and I was making just as much helping people doing this as I had been with the business with my aunt. Mm. So there's a reason I'm saying that. I, for years, for probably the first four years of this, was doing about 22 calls a week. And that's really difficult in this line of work. Mm. That's like a 60 hour work (laughs) with like a, a normal job because you're dealing with people's most interpersonal pain. I am now at the point where I'm still doing one-on-one calls and I still love it, but now I'm starting to get more into the groups. I know a lot of people start with the groups 
I can't say whether that or not that's a good strategy. I know for me, I didn't do that. But I do think that there is value in building the foundation with one-on-one coaching, getting your name out there, your reputation out there, building the trust, and then expanding into group coaching. Thank you. That's really good, the answer you've given me. Thank you very much. Something to take away with. So what would your last word be to my audience of widows listening? For those especially who are not, don't see the way. So I guess some people say they just can't see their way yet. They just yeah. can't see their way. So what would you yeah. say to them? What I would say to them is that I couldn't see the way either. I, I talk about how I hated hope. Like if people would try to talk to me about hope, I would not only not believe them, it would actually fill me with rage. I would get so mad. Do not talk to me about hope as my wife is dying. Do not talk to me about hope after my wife died. But you, me, so many widowed people out there that we know, that we see every day, and ones that we'll never know, have somehow, some way, gotten back up on their feet, have kept fighting, even during the moments when they didn't want to fight, and have built a better tomorrow for themselves. And I would tell people that it is 100% possible, even if you don't believe that right now. Keep it in the back of your mind, because I promise you it is possible. Indeed. Because I say, in relation to what you say, I just say, and this is what I did. It was just one day at a time. One day at a time. One foot in front. Next. Before you go, could you please plug your books? Yes. I know that you've got yet. Please tell us a bit about your books. Yes. Widow, widowed. Yeah, please. Yep. So I have four books. I'll make it quick. So the first two are just a lot of heart and emotion. There is a little bit of coaching in there, but they're very raw books. They're incredibly easy to read. I design them for people with grief brain and ADD like me. So the easiest books to read, you'll laugh, you'll cry. The first two books are very, very unique. The third book is actually about dating. So it's entitled How to Date a Widow 101, although it's actually for the widowed person to read as well. So I always tell it, my clients and my you know, people on social media, it's intended for the widowed person to read first and then to hand to a love interest. It's also very easy to read, very easy to format. And then the fourth book is actually entitled The Stupid S-H-I-T. Yeah. I don't know if I could swear on this podcast, so I'll say that. <laughs> the Stupid S-H-I-T yeah. that people say to grievers. Yes. So it's all about the stupid things people say to us but it's also got a lot of helpful tips in it and heartfelt stories. So those are my four books. Okay, brilliant. Okay, it's been, I'm just gonna round on now. It's been such a, it's been such a lot. We could, I could be talking to you for another 30 minutes, <laughs> but it's been, it's, it's lovely to talk to someone who can relate to the journey. Yeah, as much as I go out and help people, it's, it's a novelty and a privilege to talk to you. Yeah, that's why, yeah, to talk to someone who's been, walked a similar journey, yeah, and to see that where you've come from and how you're growing and continue to grow, yeah. And I just love the spirit you have, yeah. And so please, I'm just going to say, keep up the excellent work. And I hope I'll be in touch, we'll keep in touch. And to those who are listening, I hope you got something from this. So I'm going to thank John Polo for coming. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing greater and much more about you. Yeah, and 
your work also will be a showcase to the world continuously. And I see on social media, congratulations are in order. There's a post I saw today, so I'm happy yeah. for you. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah. So I say thank you. And so this is just to say again to my audience, thank you for listening to Widow Recovery Secrets. We're closing down now with John Polo, who came, who spared some time to talk to you tonight. As I always say, please dare to dream greater. Thank you for listening, for downloading, and do share this podcast. It should come out within two weeks to 21 days. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you.